Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest. December 22nd, 2022, the inciting insurrection edition. I am David Plotz of CityCast in Washington, D.C. Uh, with me, we are the three wise, uh, wise magi, the three magi of the Gab Fest, I guess. I'm Jewish. <laughs> really? What do I know? I'm Jew- Maybe it's a Hanukkah <laughs> thing. Well, that would describe us, I would say. Emily Bazelon, herself a wizard of the New York Times Magazine, Yale University Law School, she is bringing frankincense. I'm going to shake some frankincense. I always wanted to know what frankincense and myrrh. Isn't there a third one? I don't know what the third one is. Gold. Gold, Fra- gold. gold frankincense and myrrh. <laughs> oh, there you She's go. She's not bringing frankincense. She's bringing common sense. What are you talking about? Yes, right. exactly. Huh? Come on. And bringing, <laughs> and bringing myrrh th- is John Dickerson of CBS Primetime. Hello, John from New York. I bring mirth wherever I go. This week on the Gap Fest. The January 6th committee caps off its extraordinary work by recommending the Department of Justice consider a criminal indictment of former President Trump. Then we will look back at the year in politics and recall memorable moments, infuriating people, and occasional delights. Then the Colorado River, the lifeblood of the West, faces the biggest crisis in its history. Can it be saved? We'll talk to the Washington Post, Joshua Partlow, who's done some extraordinary reporting about the river. Note, we are taping on Wednesday morning because of holiday stuff, so we will not be talking about Zelensky's visit to the U.S. and his speech to Congress since they have not yet happened. Uh, So listen to a different podcast to learn about that. And of course, we'll have cocktail chatter. The January 6th committee has done a heroic job in documenting the criminal and traitorous actions by Donald Trump and his minions to overturn the 2020 presidential election. Their public hearings this year were gripping and clear and tenacious. And now with just days until Republicans take control of the House, they have issued a report and most importantly recommended that the Department of Justice consider criminal indictment of the president for four different crimes, ranging from interfering with a official government proceeding to most dramatically inciting insurrection, assisting or aiding an insurrection. This recommendation isn't in itself an indictment. The DOJ doesn't have to follow it. and the DOJ is doing its own investigation, but it's it's big news anyway, I guess. Or is it big news, Emily? Why is it big news? Well, it's big news because Congress has never done this before, and it really puts an emphatic um, ending on the committee's work that shows that the committee thinks that Trump committed crimes and very serious crimes. They didn't fritter off into, you know, simply he took documents he shouldn't have. Not that that's like to be taken lightly exactly, but it wouldn't have really been a satisfying ending. So they recommended a criminal referral for insurrection, a very rarely charged and, you know, extremely serious crime in our code of crimes. And I think, you know, look, it's symbolic in that the Justice Department doesn't have to pay any attention to this. All the important calls about whether to actually prosecute former President Trump remain in the hands of the special prosecutor, Jack Smith, and ultimately the attorney general, Merrick Garland. And yet, for this committee, which has been so out in front in terms of investigation to amass all this evidence, to reach this conclusion, to put it all together in this compelling written narrative, which really allows you to compare what Trump knew or should have known and what he was saying 
and then all the false statements and actions that followed. You know, I think that's meaningful. It certainly seems to have helped shape how a lot of Americans view January 6th and the all the, I would say, plotting that led up to it. Can we linger on this for a second? So what are the different crimes they believe former President Trump committed and why? Insurrection, which is like actually fomenting, um, you know, the overthrow or the interference with the American government. Um, obstruction of a congressional proceeding, right? Obstruction of Congress, which was Congress trying to certify the election. A conspiracy to defraud. Right. And the fraud, I think, is really important because it's a way of taking all these false statements Trump made and asking about his state of mind. Did he know he was lying and then holding them to be actionable? There's making false statements, too, which are a lot of these things. Yes. Of the two of the four charges, two are related to the day of the six. But one of the things the committee did so well is explain and expand on the idea. I mean, they did two things Brilliantly, it seems to me. One was take this away from just the day of January the 6th and carefully walk through the more than two months, but let's just say the period between Election Day and January 6th, where Donald Trump tried endlessly uh, to try to overturn the election. He pressured local officials. He pressured Mike Pence. He encouraged the fake electors. He pressured the Justice Department. He pressured the Pentagon. He pressured the Homeland Security uh, team. He worked in multiple ways to overthrow the election. And, and, and nailing down each of those different gambits, it was, I think, one of the things they did very well. And the way they nailed it down was they used the voices of people inside the Trump orbit and almost exclusively people inside the Trump orbit. And these weren't randos. And we should note, of course, that the Republican leadership, McConnell and McCarthy, have both, even even before these, these hearings began, um, charged Trump with inciting the insurrection. So like one of the charges has you could call as witnesses two of the people who were there on the day, and they are the Republican leaders of the House and Senate. Um, but that anyway, so that's why the, I think th- those are two of the strongest things the committee did in their work. And also, I think they did a fantastic job in just outlining how clear it was to Trump and everyone around him that what they were saying was untrue. So if you were going to a state of mind, a sense of like, like, oh, he believed it. And so it was OK for him to twist Brad Raffensperger's arm or it was OK for him to do this. It's clear that that it's unreasonable to say that he believed these things because he had been told 50 ways till Sunday and presented with evidence that what he was saying was not true. And therefore he can't use that as a defense, although I'm sure he will. And the stakes are really clear. I mean, I feel like Liz Cheney has done such a good job throughout of framing what's at stake. And what she said this week was every president has protected the orderly transfer of power in our government, except for one. Standing on the west front of the Capitol in 1981, President Ronald Reagan described it this way. The orderly transfer of authority as called for in the Constitution routinely takes place, as it has for almost two centuries, and few of us stop to think how unique we really are. In the eyes of many in the world, this every four-year ceremony that we accept as normal is nothing less than a miracle. Every president in our history has defended this orderly transfer of authority, except one. January 6, 2021, was the first time one American president refused his constitutional duty to transfer power peacefully to the next. 
And then that explains why, why Congress is taking this historical step, why accountability is important going forward. I thought that was very just useful. Emily, what would be the process that gets an actual criminal indictment and a criminal trial of President Trump and then also lackeys and minions and lickspittles like John Eastman and Rudy Giuliani? What still needs to happen? And when could it happen? It seems like it's taken a very long time, honestly. Well, I mean, we have a special prosecutor, Jack Smith. We ha- There is a team at the Department of Justice that's sorting through the evidence. Um, until the committee finished its work, it wasn't entirely cooperating in real time with that investigation. It seemed there were certain witness transcripts, other things that it didn't immediately turn over to the Justice Department, according to various reporting. But now, apparently, the committee is shoveling everything out the door that it has that the Justice Department wants. And it's really interesting, the sort of um, way in which I think the committee's investigation inevitably furthered and put pressure on the Justice Department. I mean, if the Justice Department had been inclined to kind of think this is too much, we can't climb this mountain of indicting a president, they may still feel like the indictment itself is beyond them because they have to actually decide that they can prove something beyond a reasonable doubt, right? They can't. Congress can effectively make this symbolic charge. The Justice Department cannot and should not do that. However, the fact that the public has been primed to really have to think about these issues, the amassing of evidence, I mean, the committee was interviewing people before the Justice Department got to them. And I think all of that has really mattered. And so now we're going to see whether the Justice Department thinks it can really line up the witness testimony to prove these claims. It is important that the Justice Department can compel witness testimony in a way that the committee could not, right? People could blow off the committee, refuse to show up. If you get a subpoena from, you know, the government, there is much more pressure to testify and to testify truthfully. I mean, there are a bunch of people who said, I do not recall over and over again, Um, According to some reporting, that was on the advice of lawyers, perhaps paid for by um, Trump world. If you're getting interviewed by the FBI, that's just a different story. One other tiny little thing is they've already brought prosecutions on obstructing an official proceeding with um, and and have gotten juries to to bring guilty verdicts on that charge, which obviously you have a different set of facts with the president. But it's there's been a test case of whether you can make the case that that um, that somebody uh, uh, tried to block an official proceeding in court because that's um, that is one of the hurdles that they would face. John, one of the you're, you're a student of history and political history in particular, um, and this committee did some snazzy magic. It really caught the attention of the public. I want you to explain how they did that. I think the committee, um, first of all, it resuscitated and revived the committee process as a reasonable and useful thing. Um, and in that sense, I think that the committee, when we when I think about the committee, I think of it in two kind of ways. One, it was revelatory in the way that the, the Watergate hearings were revelatory, although not in the same way, because unlike in Watergate, where it was revelatory because of um, things weren't known, there were a lot of things that were known here. And then there was just a tonnage of evidence and the evidence came from people who were there to witness it with their eyes. But I think also the hearing should be thought of as a symbol of their time. And that is um, a couple of, in a couple of ways. One, the way the committee was formed, just the kind of crazy, you know, the, the, the role that partisanship played in there. But then I think again, also Kinzinger and, and, um, and Cheney being uh, either voted out or re- leaving from Congress is, is symbolic of what's happening in the 
Republican Party, um, where even the House leader who said that Donald Trump was responsible for the insurrection downgraded Kinzinger and Cheney and basically did everything he could to push them out of the party because the party is so controlled by either Trump or those who support Trump. So um, even somebody who's um, committed at least one of these four charges, nevertheless, is in such control of the party that the that the the heroes in this narrative who said you've done something wrong in um, not just in a single event, but against the entire history of American um, politics, that those are the people who are driven out. And so I think that tells us something about this moment and this moment for the Republican Party in the way that hearings about communism, which were all obviously very different, um, but tell us something about that time. That Joe McCarthy could get away with it for so long told us something about the fever of politics at the time. And I think this tells us something about uh, the the politics of the time, although, of course, um, those hearings are very different. So one of the things that's happening as December closes and as the new Congress approaches is that the Democratic uh, institutions of the House, which will become Republican institutions of the House when Republicans take the majority, are are shoveling things out the door. So this committee report is shoveled out the door uh, at the end of, of this Congress. So well, also the committee ends when the Congress ends. But now we also have this week the uh, Ways and Means Committee shoving Trump's tax returns out the door, um, which they've worked for years to get, which Trump used all kinds of, of legal shenanigans and chicanery to keep from them, which a, a Trump-appointed uh, judge uh, delayed for years and years. And finally, uh, the committee got hold of the tax, Trump's taxes, and almost immediately released them to the public, along with news that the IRS, to me, the most shocking part of this, the IRS, which was required by its own regulations to audit Trump's taxes, failed to do so for the first two years of the Trump presidency. Emily, do you think it was right for the Ways and Means Committee to release Trump's taxes in this way? Well, in a lot of ways, the news that this audit didn't take place really strengthens the case for going after the tax returns and releasing them because when Congress um, pursues an investigation, it, it has to have a legitimate investigative purpose. It has to be looking into something it could legislate about. Now there seems like no question this IRS rule isn't being enforced uniformly. Congress should probably pass a law requiring the IRS to do this, not to mention perhaps requiring people who run for president once they get to a certain point to release their tax returns. And so the legitimacy of Congress's purpose is really underscored by this revelation. And, you know, look, I the case against this is that you don't want to turn the IRS and releasing tax returns into witch hunt fodder that are just getting turned against politicians willy-nilly. Most Americans have a right to respect that the IRS is going to keep their tax records confidential, and that's part of how we file our tax returns and why the IRS has the buy-in that it does to the extent that it has that buy-in. I think there's a huge exception for the president. Um, I think that absolutely people who run to lead the nation should have their financial interests revealed to the public, that it's a really important way of evaluating whether they're fit to um, hold office, what kinds of conflicts of interest they have. And so I'm fine with an exception in this case, not to mention one of the dilemmas, of course, of President Trump is that his own conduct is so outside the norm that it forces other norms um, to bend or break in response to him. And this is an example of that as well. What did you guys think? Are you uncomfortable with this or do you think it's fine? 
Well, I think your point that the audit, the absence of the audit uh, makes it clear that there was a legitimate legislative purpose. It makes it clear that Trump was getting special treatment. Um, and that strongly argues that that at least the House should have gotten hold of the returns. I think there's there, there can be no real defense of the idea that the House shouldn't be able to look at the returns. I think there's a separate set of questions you have to ask about whether those returns should then be made public in the way that they're being made public. And I am not I'm not convinced, but in part because of the magnificent reporting work that you, your newspaper did, Emily, we already know a lot about Trump's taxes. We already know that he's a tax cheat of the highest order and of enormous skill. And so I don't know that there is a huge amount of public benefit served. I'm not sure we're going to learn that much new about his forms of tax cheatery. And therefore, I'm not certain that publicly releasing them actually uh, is enough of a benefit to to overcome the fact that now it makes it easier for everyone to say, oh, we're going to we're going to weaponize tax returns whenever it's convenient for us. At first, I wasn't quite sure why releasing them was necessary to underscore the fact that the IRS had failed by its own um, rules to audit the president's tax returns. Um, so in other words, couldn't you say, well, we've discovered that the IRS dropped the ball for two years um, and and then not released them to the public. But to explain why it, it is or isn't important that the IRS dropped the ball, and the reason it's important for the IRS to look at the president's taxes is to make sure the president is treated the same way regular human beings are treated. There's a secondary thing, which is fuzzy in here, which is that the public... Um, should know about a candidate's tax returns, which the president didn't do. So he's also in a special category in terms of knowing whether the person in in the presidency has conflicts of interest or, um, but that's a little bit of a separate issue. But in order to make the case that the IRS failed in its duty, you kind of have to know the ways in which it failed and why it's important that it failed. And for that, you need to look at the returns. And, you know, um, it, it helps bring the point home, I guess is my point. No, it definitely brings the point home. I guess what I'm saying is the the returns have basically been not exactly these returns, but other returns have been released. I think had the New York Times never published those other Trump returns, then then it would be obvious that these need to be publicized. But in fact, the public has a pretty good sense about the ways he evaded taxes. And so it's not it's this is more like a political point, like additively, it's not adding that much uh, that much to the to the fire. Um, the only thing I would say is if I, there was the, so he did pay taxes one year and he'd earned $24 million from some sort of real estate and he ended up paying slightly less than a million dollars in taxes. If I'd earned $24 million, wouldn't I be paying like $12 million in taxes? He's amazing. They made, they made that seem like, oh, well he did pay taxes one year, a whole million dollars. There's this funny, irony is the wrong word, but tension here where, um, one might think the problem is that he's not paying taxes, but actually, if you're the sort of, you know, flim flam man, what you care about is that people can see that your business was not like, at least you were claiming that you had all these losses. And that makes you think like not this huge success. Right. And then there's well, but that is all a fraud. Perhaps we'll see. Slate Plus members. What a lucky quality you have. What a lucky membership that is. Not lucky. You've actively done it. Uh, but in any case, because you're a Slate member, Plus member, you get bonus segments on the GabFest. And we have a bonus segment this week about 
whether Elon Musk should step down as CEO of Twitter, what would happen if he did, the latest muskiness. We'll do muskiness as our Slate Plus segment. You, as a Slate Plus member, also get member-exclusive episodes on shows like Slow Burn and Amicus, other member-exclusive segments, no ads on any Slate podcasts. So go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus and become a member today. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. On Death, Sex, and Money, we feature interviews with you, our community of listeners, getting honest about uncomfortable things. I developed an illness where it isn't safe for me to drive. A friend once said to me, sex is like air. You don't think about it until you're not getting enough. This is a similar sort of thing if you just replace sex with driving. Listen to Death, Sex, and Money wherever you get podcasts. What a year. 2022. It is sliding gracefully to its close. We're going to sum it up. The highlights and lowlights, the superlatives, the fails, the people you never hope to see again. Uh, so let's get started. Let's, let's, we can have categories, things that inspired you, people who infuriated you, uh, stuff you were surprised actually happened. Um, Emily, you want to start with something? Sure. I mean, for me, a highlight was that the 2022 election happened and it was orderly and everybody except for Carrie Lake, as far as I can tell, who lost, admitted that they lost. And we haven't had a kind of crisis of democracy. Now, this was a midterm, not a presidential election year. And so let's see what happens next. Uh, I continue to think that passing the Electoral Count Reform Act, which is in the huge omnibus spending bill, is really important, at least for plugging up the holes from 2020. But that was really... Uh, a big relief to me that we had an orderly election. John? Two things, I guess. One is that we had an orderly re election and that there were not chaos entrepreneurs who, just for their own sense of glorification and um, and to elevate their self-worth, didn't go out. You know, we saw it a little bit in Arizona, but those guys uh, um, um, playing around with the drop-off boxes were, were dealt with. Um, so... That was great that there were there was nobody um, who you know no citizens and then the the people running for office except for Carrie Lake that that they didn't imitate Donald Trump which is a um, which is part of his problem right now is that he is a loser you know he's lost three elections and that his behavior which used to be copied by a lot of different people was collectively decided to be loser behavior of those who lost um, and. Not not all of the behavior that was in the category of loser behavior, um, you know, a lot of people were behaving um, badly because Donald Trump had shown them a way that that caused you success. So it's not automatically the case that behaving like a sore loser was a, was um, was bad for you in politics because so many people had had um, run on the lie that the last election was stolen. So it was really um, that that's one of the best um political outcomes we possibly could have. And then, of course, internationally, the 
the most amazing thing is Vladimir Zelensky and the people of Ukraine um, and their incredible constancy in the face of this um, invasion by Russia. Uh, so because I'm a trivial person, I obviously <laughs> went to much more trivial places than you guys. Good. Um, so the person who, who, when I looked back at the air, whose name I was still amazed to remember, can anyone think of the, who, what person might be like, wow, I'm amazed that I remember this person's name. That's too hard. Well, Give us a hint. It's a big world with lots of people. What do you I know. About? But I remember saying it at the, I remember saying it at the time. I bet I don't remember this person's name. Cassidy Hutchinson? Cassidy Hutchinson. I was like, I still remember Cassidy Hutchinson's name. Well, it was quite dramatic ter- testimony. And it has not been refuted despite the, you know, some leaks in the paper. She was the Mark Meadows aide who reported Trump hurling his lunch at the wall and the ketchup running down the wall. She reported Trump saying he didn't want them to have uh, metal detectors and magnetometers for the January 6th people because they are not trying to hurt him. So he was happy to have them carrying guns, among many other things. All right. Another thing I thought like the like maybe the worst moment any candidate had all all year, although there were so many bad ones for Herschel Walker, was Dr. Oz's supermarket video where he's talking about the, the price or the price of vegetables for his crudite flight. That was amazing. That was on my list <laughs> of entertaining. I mean, the, 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 the way in which he said crudite as if. He was saying, like, I was just going to fill up the truck with gas. Like, he said it with, as if every person listening would know what crudité was. I went, I went to a prep school. I went to Harvard. And I was like, crudité, are you fucking kidding me? Are you, are you kidding? Oh. Unbelievable. <laughs> that was a funny campaign moment. Um, I mean... The also in that race, the 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 debate was a disaster. I mean, that was h- hard to watch. That was another. You mean the Fed because Fetterman was struggling so yeah. much. Yeah. Yes, um, that was a low. On the other hand, I did think probably the most effective thing anyone did in any political campaign was him trolling Dr. Oz for living in New Jersey. Oh yeah, and all the celebrity videos about that, which were awesome. <laughs> hey, May Matt, this is Nicole Snooky. Um, and I'm from Jersey Shore. I don't know if you've seen of it before. Um, but I'm a hot mess on a reality show, basically, and I enjoy life. Um, but I heard that you moved from New Jersey to Pennsylvania to look for a new job. And personally, I don't know why anyone would want to leave Jersey because it's like the best place ever and we're all hot messes. Um, but I want to say best of luck to you. I know you're away from home and you're in a new place, but Jersey will not forget you. I just want to let you know. I will not forget you. Um, And don't worry, because you'll be back home in Jersey soon. This is only temporary. So good luck. You got this. And Jersey loves you. Yeah, the Fetterman campaign played played with Oz so well. I have to um, pour one out for the Supreme Court, uh, you know, on a few levels. I mean, I will, first of all, just say that um, Justice Alito wins for a kind of supercilious and uh, tone 
Uh, the part of his opinion in Dobbs overturning Roe versus Wade in which he completely dismissed the idea that women might have um, an interest based on the 14th Amendment and equal protection in preserving their reproductive freedom. That was a real marker of the year for me. And then the court's just general turn both to having this selective um, invoking of history and tradition in order to make major changes in the law. Suddenly, you know, that's become kind of unmoored in a lot of cases from the original public meaning of the Constitution. But no matter, you can just kind of cherry pick your way through history and arrive at the result that you want. And then um, Adam Liptak in The New York Times has a really interesting column this week about how the Roberts court has just generally become more imperial, meaning that it takes decision-making away from the other branches of government um, at a higher rate than previous courts. And, you know, here we come to the sort of failures of Congress to really stand up to the court and take some of that power back. So watching that dynamic unfold, I mean, I guess I will just call this, you know, a low point, although it's not a point. It's like this ongoing slide that we're witnessing. I can't believe a that Breyer only resigned this year. B that the that Dobbs leak was you know wasn't that long ago. That all happened. Yes, it seems like lifetimes. I'm just gonna add two different things. One in the category, if we're doing the category of things that were um, a disappointment, um, Elon Musk. He really did not improve Twitter tremendously. <laughs> to I mean, there you. It's just I had I had this tiny little hope that innovation um, and, you know, just some kind of magic would actually make Twitter a better place uh, along the lines of the ways in which it needs to be improved. And um, he basically, if you had a plan to do that, he just reversed that plan completely. And it was based on this weird misunderstanding of speech and debate. It was just a huge disaster and missed opportunity. So that, and also a morally, um, I've mentioned it before, but, uh, you know, uh, just a huge moral failing on when Paul Pelosi was attacked by a hammer, which, by the way, goes to all the people who joked about um, an 82-year-old man getting hit in the head by a hammer because of the way um, some people deal with politics. So anybody who made a joke about that is, um, you know, had an easy opportunity to do an easily good thing, and they chose to do the wrong thing. So uh, Musk and others are, you know, have to enjoy the basement on that one. One thing I still cannot believe happened is that Trump was hiding top secret documents in Mar-a-Lago, like randomly, and they raided his house. It's just, I mean, like, what, how did that even happen? The you Trump make it sound that. like it's past tense. There are probably still some classified oh, yeah, documents he's probably going like, to prison. tucked into yeah, some golf bag somewhere. It. <laughs> yeah, but just that the that story was was so nuts. Remember no when they did that raid? And you, they you fall out the way the way those inserts used to in magazines. You know, it's exactly. like oh, here's it's a, a blow report. On. Yes, you can oh, subscribe. Oh, look, the perfume sample. Subscribe yeah. to notes from Kim Jong Un. Um, Emily, what else? What else? What other moments mattered for you this year? I was trying to think about. I know this is off our beat, but I was trying to think of you know. 
movies and TV and sports. And I realize this is from five seconds ago, and I don't even deserve to invoke it because I'm not a soccer fan. But man, that was seemed like an amazing World Cup from what I could glean. And that Qatar, you know, we spend time talking about how, oh, Qatar, what was the point of doing this? You paid gazillion dollars and everyone's mad at you. But in the end, doesn't this seem like Qatar kind of won alongside Argentina? Well, it was they won on the bodies of, you know, hundreds of migrant workers who were dead. Well, that is obviously terrible. I meant the public relations aspect of this. They seemed quite pleased with themselves. So, um, uh, David, was the World Cup as great as it seemed? Yeah, the final was the most exciting soccer game probably ever played, at least after the once it got to 80 minutes in, it was. I want to end my discussion of this with the thing that I that actually stuck with me most in 2022. And I was thinking back, like, what really stuck with me of what we've discussed in, in the year. And honestly, it was the discussion we had about the most dangerous road in America. When we talked to Marin Kogan of Vox about her article about this patch of road in Florida, which because of a whole concatenation of circumstances is incredibly dangerous for pedestrians. And, and she told us about this term, strode, this street road combination and and ever since then, I spend a lot of my time when I'm out in my car or out walking, thinking about the circumstances that make this the place I am either dangerous or not dangerous. And and I've it's the strode is definitely the word I have used more newly in 2022 than any other. So thank you, Marin, for that story. I love that. I have a word I've been using, which I probably I don't know. Tell me if you think this is just trendy or useful. Catastrophizing. I never used to think of that word, but it actually seems pretty useful and like a verb that I didn't have one word for before. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, therapists have used that word effectively for a long time, in, um, and I've loved that word for a long time because I do it all the time. <laughs> Josh Partlow, a Washington Post reporter, has done a remarkable series of articles about the plight of the Colorado River, the mightiest river of the American West. It cut the Grand Canyon. It waters the farms of California and the cities of the Southwest. And its dams, especially Glen Canyon and Hoover Dams, provide enormous amounts of electricity. So, Josh, I want you to start us off with an image that is haunting me. You begin one of your articles about the Colorado with a spooky image of a whirlpool above Glen Canyon Dam. Can you talk about that whirlpool, what it is, what it might be, and why it's so scary? Yeah, I haven't been able to get that image out of my head either when I when I was first told about it. Um, you know, it's basically, I think the easiest way to think of it is, is a bathtub running out of water and starting to circle the drain. Lake Powell, the second largest uh, reservoir in the country, is... Um, uh, it has dropped so fast that it's it's close to where the water releases through the Glen Canyon Dam. Uh, and if it gets close enough, uh, it will effectively act like a, a bathtub and the water uh, on the surface of that lake could, could turn into a giant funnel. And this has happened at some other hydroelectric dams, and you can see it on the internet. And it's... Um, it's a scary scenario, primarily because it's 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 dangerous for the for the turbines. You can't operate a hydroelectric dam in that situation. You would have to shut it down. That's the level they call 
minimum power pool at these dams when the lakes will have dropped so far that they can no longer generate electricity. And that's what's uh, facing uh, both uh, the Glen Canyon Dam, Lake Powell and the Hoover Dam, uh, Lake Mead in uh, coming coming months and years. And so that type of disaster scenario has really kind of focused everyone on on the severity of this problem and how to avoid it. So obviously that problem has huge implications for water um, use and availability in a whole bunch of states. But I just want to talk about the history for a minute here. I mean, I'm used to thinking of Lake Powell as this man-made creation, I think from the 1960s, that generated enormous opposition from a kind of small but very heated group of environmentalists who considered it a total tragedy because it flooded this beautiful canyon area in the American West. And so for me, reading this, it was like an inversion of how I'm used to thinking of Lake Powell. I mean, obviously, it's really important for water use. It's also become this recreation site that lots of people visit and enjoy. But I just wonder, you know, whether you were thinking about that history and how you think that relates to the current story. There's people that I interview in this story, the stories that I've written about it, that um, that definitely are are opposed to the very existence of Lake Powell, and and they think the dam is, like you mentioned, an ecological atrocity uh, that flooded this these beautiful canyons. And so I, I think while there are people who still have this whole time and still argue that Glen Canyon Dam should be shouldn't be there and you don't need it. The process of that, of getting rid of it is still very uh, potentially damaging to a lot of people in Arizona and California and Mexico um, because they've come to rely for six decades on a steady portionment of this water, which you can do from a reservoir and it doesn't depend on kind of the variable flows of a natural river. The other, the other big I think concern right now with the situation is if the water gets too low, then the dam ultimately becomes an obstacle to any water flowing because it'll it'll drop below the lowest holes at some point. At, at which point, you know, you're not having you're having very little water flow through the Grand Canyon, which is going to have huge implications for the environment and the ecology there. You know, I think long before you get to that point, you're probably going to see drastic mandatory cuts by the federal government and how much water can be used. But assuming that doesn't happen or and this still or the drought is so severe it still progresses to that point, then you're I think looking at these very expensive and time consuming engineering projects to kind of effectively you know route around these these dams, drill through the canyons to try to get water uh, you know, whatever water is in the river flowing. So it's kind of reached the point where they started to study some of these, some of these options and see what they could do if they had to operate at what's known as Deadpool. Josh, um, sometimes in these debates, there's a, there's a debate over the diagnosis before they can start the debate on the prescriptions and, and what to do to fix it. Is in this case, everybody, um, aligned on what caused this and can you update the, the, our listeners on kind of what what's brought us to this pass. Since I've been talking to people who follow this issue, yeah, I mean, people are sharing pretty much the same message. Um, I was just in Las Vegas at a conference, uh, the annual Colorado River Water Conference, where all the managers and the 
seven uh, Colorado River Basin states and the federal government and you know, people convened to talk about these issues. You know, ba- they basically say starting at around, you know, 2000, when the big uh, uh, Western drought began, it's uh, been a steady decline of these reservoirs. I mean, caused by climate change, um, which is the hotter temperatures have <clears throat> made the ground drier. They've um, they've extended the growing season for plants, so they take more water. Uh, when th- they've made less snowpack in the mountains, when there is uh, snowpack and runoff, that gets evaporated and absorbed by the ground faster. So one of the scary uh, aspects of this that um, some of the Bureau of Reclamation people were talking about at this conference was just how even in years when when the snowpack is is good when there's 90% snowpack, 90% average snowpack, like in the last two years, the amount of runoff reaching these reservoirs is just a fraction of that. So I think it was less than 30% two years ago and around 50% last year. So, you know, they're really seeing that, uh, you know, the conditions on the, on the ground due to the hotter and drier climate have really, um, have really changed like how this system works and refills. And so that's, um, so I think it's, you know, climate change and the drought would be the main factor. And then combined with just, I guess, a chronic overconsumption of the water, um, for all sorts of, uh, you know, reasons. I mean, the, the, both the agriculture consumes, the majority of the water from the Colorado river and then the cities, a lesser portion, but it's, it's a lot of people. Um, and you know, these are major farming regions for the country in Arizona and California that, that provide a big chunk of the vegetables the country consumes, but they're also growing extremely water intensive crops in the desert. And so it's really putting a um, crunch on on the question of whether this these types of industries are viable. Reading your work, it's hard to see how there's not a complete catastrophe here that we don't reach a Deadpool level in, in these lakes. I mean, it doesn't seem like we're going to get cooler and wetter in the West anytime soon. In a catastrophic scenario, what are the kinds of things that a, the government would have to do, what kind of draconian things would the government have to impose, and B, what kind of of economic suffering or actual suffering would the people of the West endure? Yeah, I, I think you would see a lot of government action before, particularly a Deadpool scenario. I think people are seem to be conceding that a, that a power pool scenario where you're not able to produce hydroelectric power, particularly at... Uh, at Lake Powell and probably at Lake Mead is is going to happen. I mean, those are on their projections. Uh, the the scientists who study this say they expect that to happen, at least at least temporarily. Um, so, it, at a, in a more dramatic scenario where where you can't deliver the type of water that has been delivered uh, for decades to these regions. I mean, I think, yeah, so you'd see, you'd see cuts, what you're seeing, you're seeing, you know, mandatory cuts for people to use less. What's happening now is there's, you know, there's $4 billion in the Inflation Reduction Act for drought in the West. And so 
And so there's negotiations going on right now to pay farmers not to plant crops. So there would be some combination of uh, that, I think, widespread economic uh, incentives to farmers to reduce how much they grow. There would likely be cuts to city water supplies. What I heard in this conference and from these water managers is this payment is just not a sustainable scenario that that you can you know i think the the federal government's trying to balance how to do some of that to get a short-term reduction in how much water is used but also really try to emphasize you know converting farmers to more water efficient irrigation systems and making other kind of longer term investments that will hopefully just you know reduce the amount of water that people need and and maybe transition people into other crops but i think i i mean i yeah i i think it's going to have a a huge economic impact one way or the other so this is you know these are um obviously these regions are extremely dependent on this water and um and and there's going to be a lot less of it available josh partlow it's a reporter with the washington post read his reporting on the colorado river thanks josh Thank you very much. Let's go to cocktail chatter, Emily, when you're watching a gorgeous sunset, a sunset not nearly as beautiful as a sunset over over Horseshoe Bend on the Colorado River, say, and having a drink. What are you going to be chattering about with your loved ones? I was really struck by a story this week from Miranda Green, who's at Floodlight News. It's an investigation she did with NPR and David Folkenflik and Mario Ariza Baez. Um, And it's about how these two big power companies infiltrated news sites in a bunch of southern states to manipulate the news. The reporting is about Alabama Power and Florida Power, and it seems like they were working with a consulting firm called Matrix, which basically had relationships with these news sites that have in some places replaced local newspapers and I mean, it just looks like pay to play where um, the consulting forum was whispering in the ear of reporters and editors at these sites and getting positive coverage or getting them to slam their critics. It just was really alarming in terms of the way there can be kind of political influence that we can't see that infiltrates news coverage. Um, And in this year in which I thought a lot about what journalists should be doing, you know, how we cannot do bad both sides journalism, but also maintain our curiosity curiosity and our humility about what we know and don't know, this was worrisome. And I thought Miranda Green and her colleagues just did a really good job explaining and uncovering the story. So you can check it out in NPR. John, what is your chatter? My chatter is about my uh, slate reads with Gotham Makunda about his book, Picking Presidents. The conversation is about the book, but it's also got all kinds of great um, tidbits from somebody who teaches leadership and has studied leadership. Um, and including the things that he, as a teacher, and um, has has incorporated in his teaching, and that um, uh, that he thinks is the most one most effective thing to know about being a leader. So um, go listen to that and grow two feet tall. Gabfest reads in your feed, uh, and I'm so excited. I almost chatted about my upcoming Gabfest reads. The book I'm reading is so good. I'm so excited to talk to. Shahan Mufti about his book, American Caliph. Um, but that is not my chatter. But I look forward to check for that in your in your GabFest feed in January because it's a fantastic book. I want to talk about 
the avatars just come out, new avatars just come out, which means James Cameron, the megalomaniacal, brilliant director of Avatar is in the news as always. And James Cameron has a penchant for really doing things with a splash often because he loves water. And he responded this week to critics of his movie Titanic. Now Titanic is a, I think it's having its 25th anniversary. And for years, a lot of people have complained about the closing part of Titanic where Jack, the character played by Leonardo DiCaprio, dies. Spoiler. But Rose, <laughs> the character played by Kate Winslet, survives. Rose survives as she's, she, she is on a raft that is basically a door, a wooden door. And well, Jack, and he helps her get on it. And he helps raft. her get on it. And Jack, meanwhile, can't decides They decide he can't, he, he can't be on the raft, too. It will sink the raft. So he basically... Um, he just stays in the water and he freezes to death and he is dead. And lots of people, including Mythbusters, have claimed they both could fit on the raft. They both could have been on the door. Had he gotten on, they both would have survived. How did Mythbusters decide this? Did they like measure the dimension of, of yeah, the door? Yeah, they measured the dimension of the door. They could, like, and then they and and they note actually the most important point Mythbusters made was that Rose is wearing a life jacket, and that so if you'd attach the life jacket to the door itself it would have increased the buoyancy of the door so that was genius and therefore okay, they both could the fact poof. that jack and rose didn't think of this in yes. the moment yes. it seems like you could give them yes. a pass for that they were like super cold exactly. and in desperate circumstances exactly. that's what that's what the psychologist said it's like you can't expect people to make perfect decisions i definitely wouldn't have made that decision um anyway but james cameron james cameron commissioned a study <laughs> really? Just prove that they could this. not have survived. With and, but the study included didn't it include some sort of uh, hypothermia test? I mean, in other words, it was a real yeah, yes. test of the conditions with yes. stunt people. Someone yeah. had to get really, really yes. cold. Unfortunately, and, like, unfortunately someone died. died. <laughs> unfortunately, someone died. Yeah. That does not but, seem worth it. But it lasts a long last. You know the answer to the question. I love Titanic. By the way, I really love Me Titanic. Too. I think that's just. A, it's not an underrated movie because obviously it's. Do you think it wears well? Do, do yeah, I've watched it, it recently. It wears mm. so well. It, no, it's it's fantastic. Kate Winslet. Is I fell amazing. in love with Kate Winslet in oh. that movie. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> oh my gosh, uh, listeners, you have sent us great chatters. Please keep them coming over the holidays. Tweet them to us at, at @slategabfest or email them to us at gabfest at slate.com. That is the best way to get them to us. And our listener chatter this week comes from Samuel Rutledge. Hi, this is Sam Rutledge from Eugene, Oregon. My cocktail chatter is a piece of data visualization from the Wikimedia Commons that was made by someone named Kaj Tulungs. And I apologize if I've mispronounced your name. It shows changes in the United States population demographics starting in 1900 and going through 2020. And I watched this on loop about a hundred times. Um, I had found it looking for a way to understand how the baby boomers are moving through the population. And it definitely shows that, but also demographic changes and race. And it's a fascinating insight into how the United States has changed over the last 120 years. That is our show for today. The Gabfest is produced by Shana Roth. I hope she has a great Christmas. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. I hope she has a great Christmas, too. Our theme music is by They Might Be Giants. I saw them in D.C. last week. It was so fun. It was really fun. I was taking, in fact, I'll share this. I was taking a photo with John and John in the alley behind the 930 Club. 
and my girlfriend was taking the photo and as taking the photo a rat ran across <laughs> my feet and my girlfriend started to scream it was amazing it was a rat at the 930 club which is very on brand Ben Richmond is Senior Director for Podcast Operations. Alicia Montgomery is the VP of Audio for Slate. Please follow us on Twitter at SlateGabFest and tweet and chatter to us there. For Emily Bazelon, John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with you next week with our Conundrum Show with Alison Bechdel. Talk to you then. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? I can't believe we're doing this topic. It's so crazy. But I, this was actually my idea, so what can I say? So Elon Musk did this Twitter poll this week where he asked if he should stay on as CEO of Twitter, and he promised to abide by the results. 57% of the 17 million people who voted in this Twitter poll said no, he should not stay on as CEO. Not clear if he won or lost. I don't know what, he, what outcome he wanted. And now come reports that he is searching for a CEO, and he said, in fact, that a CEO will take over. But he still owns the company. So Well, and he's still saying, I can't find anyone who wants to do this job. Hmm, why would that be? Because they yes. would have to work for you, and you have turned out to be a nightmare? I know. Can you imagine, like, this petulant owner who's like, spends his day hurling rocks at glass, plate glass windows and dogs? Well, and also has no vision for, like, had this confused vision based on a weird thing that is that is shambling out as poorly as a lot of people predicted. Yeah. I mean, me. Yeah. I, I yes, I, I had hopes. I was, my hopes have been dashed. Um, he also like in, in, there's always 12 pieces of Twitter news. The, the news this week also that he banned all these journalists, some temporarily, some seemingly long and temporary, longer than temporarily for saying they broke Twitter policies about, you know, publishing locations, his location, which A, they didn't break. B, those policies didn't exist at the time. Uh, C, C, we're talking about his C, jet. Yeah, and it's and it's complete nonsense, but it's mostly of of people who just critiqued him and he banned them. And so funny, you know, to see this. Everyone's a free speech absolute. That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs>